We're working our way through Paul's letter to the Romans. We've said this from time to time. Paul's letters are two-way communications. So when we read a letter like his letter to the Romans, it's like listening to someone talking on the phone. You can kind of get some idea what's happening when you listen to one side of a conversation, but you can misunderstand what's happening. And we'll find this to be the case in Romans chapter 2, understanding what's happening on the other side will help us to understand what he's writing here. But listen, I'm going to just a portion of it before we establish some context. Here's what he says. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing Seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. God could have communicated in timeless teachings. Could have done that if he had chosen to. He could have timeless epithets from the sky that come down via angels or whatever, but he didn't do that. The way God communicated with us a communicated in time-bound teachings. And that means something as we come to the Bible. When we hear a passage from the Bible, the proper interpretation is that which the original readers would have understood. It came within a culture. It came to people who are undergoing things. And the proper interpretation of a passage then is what these original readers would have understood. And why I say that is you can take a passage and wrench it out of context. And it seems to say some things that are very startling. And, and some individuals would believe then the Bible is whatever comes to our mind, but to proper interpretation, we have to understand the context. Somebody said this, it's a, we heard this a lot, we're going to seminary, text without context is pretext. If you take a text out of the Bible and pull it out of its context, you can make the Bible say anything you want it to say. And that's why we have to pay attention to the context. And with that in mind, we let's remind ourselves of the historical context. What's happening in Rome and in Paul's life when he writes this letter? And we'll also look at where does this fall in the letter? And when we establish the context, then we're going to read the entire passage and see if it doesn't change the way you hear it. Um, in terms of historical context, Jews constituted 10% of the Roman Empire, and they're in the midst of a polytheistic, anything-goes, sexually immoral culture. The Jews were kind of admired. They believed in one God, and they were kind of morally sane in, in the midst of a culture that was immorally Insane. And um, they fell out of favor, though, because of the conflict that evolved in the decades following the beginning of the church in Israel. So initially, the church 
was, grew up in Jerusalem. That's where the original followers of Christ were. What happened? In Jerusalem, there were persecutions and famines. And so Jews and Jewish Christians were propelled out of Jerusalem into the Roman Empire. And they settled in different places. They settled in Rome. What ended up happening, there was conflict between Jews who were faithful to Judaism and Jews who had converted to Christianity. In fact, the conflict got so heated that in 40-41 AD, the Emperor Claudius banished Jews from Rome. He said, that's all I can stand. I, I don't want any more of this arguing. If you're a Jew, you're out. And with that left, the Jews, Jewish Christians, were the foundation of the church in Rome. And so now Gentiles are sitting around, and they have to lead themselves. They don't have their older brothers and sisters to be able to guide them. What happened when the Emperor Claudius died about four years later, in 54, another emperor came. And the way it worked, if you were a Roman emperor, that if you're a new emperor, the rulings of the old one went away. And so uh, new emperor, Jews come on back. And so they came back into Rome and they came back into the church. And it would be something like if you are a younger brother and sister and you've got kind of a picky persnickety older brother and sister, they go away to college and you get their bedroom and you get used to living large in the house and then they come back. And it's kind of, well, it's kind of nice to see you, but I kind of liked being on my own. That's what these Gentile Christians would have felt like. They had done okay on their own, but their older brothers and sisters come, and they're kind of a snoopy and snitty, and they're looking at their lives, and, and it creates some interesting dynamics. We have the sense that there is a looking-down-their-nose judgmentalism that's going on. And um, for these, yeah, it's, it's, that's, and Paul writes within one to three years, of the Jews returning. And I don't think that's a mistake. He understands what's happening. Uh, that's the historical context. About the literary context, what's been happening? What's Paul been talking about before he brings all this up about judgment and, and wrath and fury? Um, he's just detonated a spiritual time bomb. He just, in the text, what happened, he in a culture, a Greco-Roman culture, embraced sexual promiscuity. And they embraced it wholeheartedly. Homosexuality, heterosexuality, all kinds of sexuality. Everything was a go in Rome. Jews would have believed, as many Christians do today, that sexual immorality is the reason for God's judgment. And so when Paul was... His letter was being read to the individuals in this house church. These Jewish Christians recently arrived would be looking... Kind of casting a glance at their Gentile, but I hope you're listening to this. You know, he's talking about people like you. Um, they would have again believed that the reason for God's judgment is sexual immorality. And Paul ends up saying something very different. He says, sexual immorality isn't the reason for God's judgment. It's not really God's pet peeve in that way. It's the result of God's judgment. It says in what we read last week, God gave them over, gave them over 
in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. What God gave them over means is that he took away their moral brake pads. So they try to step on moral brakes and they skid right through intersections morally. And he goes on to say, immorality isn't the reason for God's judgment, it's the result. Well, what's the reason? And this is what he says, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and the foolish hearts were darkened. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Their view of sex wasn't the root of the problem. Their view of sex wasn't the root of their problem. It was the fruit of their problem. The root of their problem wasn't their view of sex. It was their view of God. There was enough in creation to create a sense for who God is in dismissing all that. They didn't glorify God or give thanks. And so what it's saying, then God gave them over so that they were going to slide through moral intersections. They were going to have a very hard time saying no. Sexual sin is a consequence. And again, it's not just individual. He's talking as a culture here. You read different things about our culture. It's indicated that that we're losing the ability to be quiet and to deal with tension. Again, some would say that, that we are pretty used to having what we want, but that's not true of everyone. But I think in general we might say, so it's a cultural phenomenon. The same thing it's describing is happening. It's not that every single individual who doesn't honor God ends up sexually immoral. That's not the point. But culturally, it's a general trend that Paul observed at the time. The sexual sin, again, is a consequence or outworking of the rejection of God and a failure to honor him. Uh, God gives men and women, he says, over to spiritual insanity. Uh, not just sexual. Here's what Paul says. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. An ability to make sane spiritual choices, not just sexual, but socially. Spiritual insanity doesn't only present as sexual immorality. It presents as social immorality. And so after talking about all these sexual sins, Paul goes to talk about these types of problems. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife. Deceit, maliciousness, and, and what we might happen, what we might imagine is happening in this gathering where Jews and Gentiles are gathering. Paul has been describing all these sexual sins and the Jews look, cast sideways glances. I hope he's listening to this and what he envy. Well, let's get back to the other list, you know, the sexual list. Let's get back to that stuff because they felt like they were on good ground there, but then he talks about gossips and Malice and hatred and now everybody has to listen to what's happening because no one's exempt. They might have felt that they were kind of better than because of sexual choices, but that's not where Paul 
keeps it. Um, you don't need to be a Christian to be sexually moral. Uh, chastity is not the litmus test of spirituality. It is, a, it is an indicator, but it's not the litmus test of spirituality. Charity is. Love, giving, um, helping, serving. That's the litmus test of spirituality. The fact is, somebody can be morally pure, but lacking compassion. And somebody who is morally pure, but loveless, is not mature spiritually. And that's the point that Paul is making here. So this is the context. This is the context. This dynamic happening. So in chapter 2, Paul continues to confront the self-righteous. And that's what we find. Um, and I'll read Romans chapter 2. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man? You who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires... They are a lot of themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. What's happening here? Jews believe in that, this context that by having the Mosaic law, a better law, that it, because it was given to them, they are a leg up spiritually. They are superior to the Gentiles because they have a superior law. And they look down at the Gentiles in the context for not having the Ten Commandments given to them. And by view of possessing this, they feel superior. That's what's happening. Um, Paul demolishes the claim that the possession of the law or circumcision means that you have an advantage before God because what Paul will say, having the law doesn't help you if you don't do it. 
You could have a good law, but if you don't do it, you're no better off. That's his point. He says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. You know what he's getting at here? He's getting at those who are pointing their finger at others. They claim to have the ability to judge others because they had a superior law. And even though they might not be perfect, they have the right to point to other people's behavior. And Paul points to the one who's pointing the finger and says, stop it. Stop it. You have no right to point a finger at those who don't live up to the standard of behavior talked about in the Ten Commandments. Uh, now, again, it's, it's not that that standard doesn't, doesn't work, but you're not going to live the way God wants you to live because somebody gets in your face and points a finger at you. Would you agree with me? Would you agree with me? You're going to punish somebody into being loving? How does that work? Punish somebody into being loving. Not going to work. Shame somebody into being loving. That work? No, it doesn't. That's what Paul gets after. That's what he's getting after. He's not talking about the judged. He's talking about the judges. Um, receiving the Mosaic law will not exempt them from judgment. It's not enough to hear the law. You have to do it. So when Paul talks about the judgment, he's not talking about the Gentiles. He's talking to those who are pointing the finger. They they believe that they have the right to be able to say what they're saying. Um, it's not enough to be sexually immoral, sexually moral, biblically. Um, what we know is that God draws the line not at what you do, but on what you think. That's what Jesus talked about. You said, you've heard it said, do not murder. Anyone who says raka to his brother is guilty of the desire that leads to murder and is guilty of murder. The same thing with immorality. I'm glad I've never... What Jesus said, have you lusted? It's the same thing. Lust, adultery begins with a desire. And God holds us accountable for desires. So what Paul will say, and he'll talk about the good news. This isn't good news yet. We can't, using conformity to the Ten Commandments, create a righteousness that God will accept. The righteousness that God accepts. If you're going to live a law and if you're going to be righteous by doing what God asks, you've got to do it perfectly. And none of us can control our thinking. And that's what Paul was going to get to. Uh, they are sitting in the seat of Moses, condemning behavior as substandard. Again, they believe that their possession of the law and pointing it out constitute a basis for a righteous status. And Paul says, that's not the way it works. He says, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Paul opposes self-righteousness because of the very same reason that Jesus opposed it. Look what it says, Matthew 23. It's in your worship folder, verses 1 through 5. Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. 
So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. What Jesus is getting at, the weight of the law is considerable. And those who claimed to speak for God when Jesus was around would impose that burden on the shoulders of people and then step back and see how well they managed them. The most spiritual was the one who managed the heaviest burden. And Jesus' problem with this is not the weight of the law, but the attitude of the one imposing it. His problem is this. They would put the stipulations and the commandments on people's shoulders. But then what they didn't do is the problem. They didn't come alongside and help them bear it. That was the problem. The law is weighty. What we're supposed to do is not point a finger at one another, but come alongside one another and support and help one another. That's what Jesus is pointing out. That's what it is to be Christ-like, to come alongside, to support, to help people make the choices that will bring them to where God wants them to be. He would have us encourage one another and walk with one another. Encouragement, not accountability. Accountability is when you stand in front of somebody and and stipulate where they're doing everything wrong. Accountability is before. Encouragement is alongside. Literally, let me show you what encouragement means. Encouragement means to call alongside. To call alongside. Taylor, come on up here. So I want you I want to show you what encouragement is. This is encouragement. It's coming alongside, and it's, I know she's perfect, though. You know, so there's not, there's no, oh, I'm not seeing perfection registered here. No, no. So what it means, this is what accountability looks like. It, you know, it's evaluative, and I'm looking at things. Mm. This is not what Jesus is pointing out. Encouragement doesn't look this way. It looks this way. It looks, let's, it, it assumes that there's fatigue. Now, Taylor doesn't get fatigued at doing the right thing, but let's say she did sometime. It assumes that there's weariness. That's what someone who needs to be encouraged experienced the need for encouragement. And it's coming alongside and helping by bringing influence to help Taylor or whoever is being encouraged to keep walking on the road truly best. And that's always easier. Thanks, Taylor. With somebody else. Um, and this is what Jesus is encouraging uh, his representatives to do. Encouragement, not accountability. Um, the problem was that those who spoke for God didn't ease the burden and they weren't Christ-like. Um, Jesus talked about what changes he brings because he is the mediator of a new covenant. Let me just show you a couple of verses. Um, this is what it talks about. About it says Jesus is a high priest, and 
when it talks about high priest, it says we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. You know what was happening in this church and what Paul was upset about? The absence of sympathy. Those who speak for God had an uppity attitude. They were being condescending to those who were less than they were. They weren't sympathizing. And this is what Jesus does. He talks about uh, one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. The reason Jesus had to come in a body, he didn't sin, but he knows the pull. And so Jesus will not look down his nose at you. He will come alongside and shows so should those who speak for him. Says he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. A high priest, again, Jesus never sinned, but he felt the pull. He felt the pull of desires. That means he can understand you. Now, you made choices that he didn't make. But he understands why you made them. He understands the things that were happening inside. And his attitude towards you is to come alongside. Now, you might not realize that because those who claim to speak for God really didn't bring that kind of attitude. That's what Paul is upset about when he writes this letter to the Romans. Those who were the spiritual older brothers and sisters are the ones who are pointing the finger rather than coming alongside. He says, come on, man, they're young. Of course they're going to make dumb choices. Our job as those who speak for Christ is not to judge them. So stop it. Come alongside. Walk with them. Help them get to the place where they're making better choices. Don't just point a finger at them because they're not. That's what Paul is upset about. And because this is what Jesus is like, um, and just so you know, uh, Jesus being a high priest, it has something interesting here. When there is a change in the priesthood, there's a necessity, a change in the law as well. When Jesus came and became a priest, there was a different law put in place. The old covenant gives way to the new. And here's what the new covenant says. I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. This is what he wants his representatives to express to those who are seeking to follow Christ. And this, is, this wasn't happening. Uh, Jesus clearly communicated what God's desire is. It's not sacrifice, but it's mercy. Look what he says in Matthew 9, 10 through 13. It says, As Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? By the way, Jesus never called somebody a sinner. He called them lost. It was the Pharisees and the religious leader who called people sinners, and he never did. 
Um, but when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Um, sacrifice is what you do. You separate from everything unclean in order to worship God, in order to follow what God prescribed in the Old Covenant. Jesus taught that what defiles or makes a person unclean is not, it's not that they hang around with sinners, but it's that their heart lacks mercy. Jesus came to call sinners And when he says he comes to call sinners, this is what he's talking about. Jesus' purpose, when it says he came to call individuals, the individuals he calls, he's not just going to call to be Christians. He's going to call them to be his ambassadors. Because what God said to Abraham is this. Through you, every nation on the earth will be blessed. And he's talking to Abraham and Abraham's children, who are Jews. And what is being described is this. When Jesus came, he came to gather around him those who would be ambassadors. They would be those who would take this good news and go into places where they had never heard about it go into Rome and different Gentile nations. That is what Jesus came to do. Not just call individuals to be Christians, but individuals to go in his name to bring the good news to places that had never heard it. And those that he dispatched and found were the best ones to do that were not the righteous but were the sinners, those who understood what it was like to make bad choices, who experienced God's forgiveness, because when they went out in God's name and they talked to someone who had issues, they didn't look down their nose like this. They said, hey man, I know exactly what you mean. I made choices exactly like that. That's why Jesus, when he was looking for emissaries, he looked for sinners because they could sympathize with people. And that's what he needed because he's sympathetic. And he sent individuals who were sympathetic as well. That's what Paul's problem was with these individuals, these Jewish Christians, who should know enough about bad choices not to point a finger at those Gentiles who don't know yet, but to come alongside them and say, I know exactly why you make choices like that. I might not have made that choice, but I've made all kinds of choices. I'll tell you what, let's continue to walk together. Let's continue to learn about what Jesus is like, and together we'll become more like him. What do you say about that? That's what Paul's looking for. And that's why he calls them on the carpet for judging. Does that make sense? Do you understand? This doesn't work. It's not what Jesus sent them to do. He sent them to sympathize. That's why Jesus called sinners. Sometimes well, sometimes we, we misunderstand that. Um, 
Jews were given the gospel to extend to Gentiles. And the, and the gospel is, I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. That's the good news. And when individuals believe it, they start to become less judgmental, more sympathetic, more Christ-like, more loving. They start to love God and love others. The mark of a Christian is love. And if you love, you will make better sexual choices, better social choices, because you don't want to love people like you love oranges. Talked about that. Some people love people like they love oranges. Peel them, strip them, and peel them, squeeze them, and throw them away. And that's no, no. What ends up happening is, as we are loved, we learn to love others. We learn to be a little gentler with ourselves, not quite so judgmental to ourselves. In fact, you know what? If the voice that lives inside of us were externalized. And if I could see the way you talk to yourself, the finger you point at yourself, you understand that, don't you? That's not okay either. Because God isn't treating you that way. And he would have you treat not only others, but yourself the way he does. Paul didn't like bait-and-switch tactics, what he says in verse 5. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience, endurance, in well-doing, seek for glory and honor and mortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury, tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, with glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, because God shows no partiality. Um, their confusion was justified. Ours is not as much. I, I dare say we might should know better. Look what he... Paul says, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Nation means Gentiles. Do you know what Paul understood? that the obedience that needs to be cultivated is the obedience of faith. You need to believe the right things before you'll do the right things. What ends up happening in many churches, what they're taught to believe is very, some things, but then the focus is on doing. That's upside down. Paul didn't do that. What he understood with these Gentiles, the obedience of faith is going to take time. It's going to take time for us to really believe that this is true. That this is true. It's going to take time. So 
The encouragement is continue to put this in your head, these kind of promises, because as God's commitments become clearer, they become more known, more comfortable. They will start to push out the damning, condemning thoughts. And when that happens, you will begin to change. You'll find that you're being less harsh with yourself and less harsh with others. The obedience of faith, I want you to listen to me. The obedience of faith takes time. Continue to focus on his commitments. They will change you. You'll start to believe things about God. And isn't that the issue that Paul is getting at? See, immorality wasn't the root of the problem. Idolatry was. God wants us to think true things about him. And as that happens, you'll find yourself acting like Christ did, because Christ thought true things about God. Um, Where does the power come from? It says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. The gospel is good news. As we make room for good news, commitments in our mind, what ends up happening, we experience God's power. Where does God's power come from? From the gospel. And it comes when we think about it. So what I'd say then, if you happen to go to a place where you find more often than not that you're judged and condemned and it's it's claims to speak in God's name, leave there. Turn off the radio. That's what Paul has. That's the problem he has in this place. Focus in on God's commitments and God's love because that's what changes us. Jesus wants not sacrifice but mercy. That's what he desires. And we become more merciful as we receive mercy. Uh, problem in a nutshell? God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is what Jesus calls his followers to express to the world. The world cannot behold what the church does not reflect. I think he would have us reflect a new covenant that he demonstrates his own love and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The world cannot behold what the church does not reflect and the church cannot reflect what the church does not behold. You know what I'm going to ask you to do? Keep coming back if you can. But focus on his commitments. The world cannot behold what we do not reflect. And we cannot reflect what we do not behold. Tune this in. This is what God wants us to reflect to a world desperately in need of mercy and love. Come on up, we're going to have a closing song. Great song. Let me pray for us. 
Father, thank you for uh, what you tell us, and I'd ask that we would um, continue to be mindful of these things. You understand that we get pulled hither and yon, and, and yet the kindness leads us to repentance. Repentance means we change our mind, we change the way we think about things, which changes what we do, and it's kindness that leads your tolerance and your patience. Would you help us gradually, slowly make more room for that so that mercy would replace judgment both in us and through us? In Jesus' name, amen.